Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello, and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started tonight, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is a 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. So let's go ahead and I will jump into the financial and non-financial disclosures. Tonight we have joining us Dr. Natalie Douglas, and she is a salaried employee from Central Michigan University as well as the Informed SLP. She does receive an honorarium for this podcast. Natalie Douglas is supported by the National Institute on Aging, NIA, of the National Institutes of Health under award number U54AG063546, which funds NIA-embedded pragmatic Alzheimer's disease and AD-related dementias, Clinical Trials Collaboratory, the NIH Impact Collaboratory. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. Natalie Douglas is also supported by the Learning Health Systems Rehabilitation Research Network Scholar and Pilot Programs. She has no non-financial disclosures. And my financial disclosures are that I am a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia as well as at Old Dominion University and James Madison University, and I do receive financial reimbursement for this podcast. My non-financial disclosure is that I am the Serving Secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. All right, so let's jump right in, and I'm going to um, give you Dr. Douglas's bio. So Dr. Douglas is a professor of communication sciences and disorders in the division of speech language pathology at Central Michigan University and an editor in the adult section of the informed SLP. As a clinician scholar, she is firmly committed to closing the research to practice gap, particularly for people living with acquired communication disorders from neurological disease. Dr. Douglas actively partners with speech language pathologists to develop and test interventions that improve communication, life participation, and quality of life for people living with aphasia, traumatic brain injury, and dementia. She is currently studying how to improve communication between people living with dementia and their staff care partners in long-term care environments and pursuing additional training in pragmatic clinical trials and learning health systems. So thank you, Natalie, for being here tonight, and welcome to our podcast. 
Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. And the bio is so long, the disclosures were so long. Like, <laughs> oh my word, the patience for listening. Thank you. Good grief. No, that was great. It's important though to have that out there because that helps you also get more people into your research realm. And, you know, you and I have talked before, so I'm a little bit more familiar with what you've been working on. So let's jump into what the research to practice gap for SLPs, what does that look like in terms of what your research is covering right now? A couple of different things. So first of all, I spent a good decade in full-time clinical practice before transitioning to an academic degree. So that definitely kind of drives my research questions. And particularly when I was working in skilled nursing environments, I just remember feeling really distraught, honestly, about just so many things. But particularly, I knew the treatments that I wanted to do. I knew the practices that were best practice, but I felt really constrained that I couldn't do them because of factors outside of my control. So like things like the organization and all of these factors that we know impact practice, but they really don't get talked about a lot. So one of the things I have two kind of main projects that kind of go along with those really long disclosures. (laughs) But the first is in trying to develop a coaching program for people living with dementia in nursing homes, nursing assistants, and speech language pathologists. So we've implemented this program. It's a six session program that every time we do it, we tweak it and change it based on the context. Because we know, you know, if you walk into one skilled nursing environment, you walk into one skilled nursing environment, right? And like the context is so different, no matter where you go, you know? So every time we participate in that program, we change it and we tailor it to the context. But we really got a lot of input from nursing assistants, a lot of input from SLPs about what would work, about what wouldn't work. And the whole idea behind this program is that it's billable and reimbursable and that it can contribute to productivity, but in a way that is functional and hopefully providing care. So that's kind of one aspect. And then the other aspect is a little bit newer. Um, I'm working with this uh, with Intermountain Health and they have a couple, they have four inpatient rehab facilities out um, west in like the Utah, Colorado area. And it was through this um, mechanism called LEARN. And that was one of the big acronyms that you made. But basically, it kind of switches the research paradigm on its head. Because what typically happens is a researcher is sitting in some building somewhere, comes up with an idea, researches it in this perfect setting, and then tries to push it into clinical practice. And then we all wonder why it doesn't work, right? And it wasn't formed by clinicians. It's not even necessarily a need of clinicians or the people that we're serving. But in this particular mechanism, it was the healthcare system that has the problem. So they have the idea that they want research. So in this particular kind of interaction that we've been having, they want some support with including inpatient rehab 
they want to decrease falls in inpatient rehab and they want to explicitly include speech language pathology and how to do that. So we've been looking at data and really kind of figuring out, we know it makes sense, right? That communication and cognitive status and all of those things would impact falls, but how do we address that in a way where we're explicitly taking advantage of the skills of what speech pathology has to bring to the table? So I think in both of these instances, we're trying to take an approach of, look, it's the clinicians who are the experts and who know what's going on in these contexts. So we need to seek them out first to see what are the problems, what are the issues before we try to implement any type of program, because otherwise it's just not going to be relevant. It's just not going to work. Well, thank you for that, because, yeah, a lot of times I think a lot of clinicians in the field don't feel like their voices are heard or that the thing, even back to like the fall risk piece, I still an outpatient ask my patients that, you know, how many falls have you had at home recently? And, um, you know, what were the circumstances surrounding that? So I think that is brilliant because it's something that we definitely are involved in whether it's just being able to relay that message to the multidisciplinary team um, or if it's something that we need to look at deeper and maybe contact a neurologist because there's more going on. Yes. Yeah. That that's just brilliant. So thank you for that because I'll be looking for that. I know we have to publish it and get it together. And I see a model in the chat. So I'm going to put this, I'm going to type, can I type it in the chat for everybody? So Mm -hmm. this, the name. It's a funding mechanism and it's the learning health systems. You might have to Google this rehabilitation research network, um, learning health systems. And it's um, a collaboration of multiple different universities. So like Brown university, Pittsburgh. Um, but then they're also explicitly connected to health systems. So like Cleveland Clinic, Intermountain Health, Johns Hopkins, a lot of places so that it's not um, that the perspectives aren't just coming from a researcher, but they're coming from the healthcare system and people who are receiving care. So learning health systems, I think if you Google this and they have lots of different webinars and different things for free on their website, that'll give you more information about like the system, about what it's their priorities in terms of trying to move the research to practice gap. Um, And they work not just with speech, but also physical and our occupational therapy colleagues. And this whole whole idea is like, we have got to serve our clients better by making, getting research and clinical practice kind of closer together. But if you Google that, that should get you close. Okay. And so let's then look at um, what is the research to practice gap in SLP? Because I think a lot of people maybe have a a sort of general idea, but I would love to hear um, what your definition is and what that looks like. Yeah. So back in the early 2000s, there was this seminal study that came out that said it takes 17 years to get 14% of research into routine practice, which is absurd, right? And you think about it. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. So this is like in the United States anyway, in many cases, this is taxpayer dollars, right? Government funded research that right. takes 17 years to get only a fraction of it into the reality of service provision. And 
So that was something that although those particular studies, they mostly involved mental health and some education, it wasn't that far of a leap to think about speech language pathology in those terms. And that's why um, we have been really trying to move things forward with this field called implementation science. So there's this entire field known as implementation science, and it's across disciplines. Because unfortunately, you know, speech is not the only place, discipline that has this research to practice gap. It's everywhere, right? It's in medicine, it's in social work, education, across the board. So implementation science really studies, one, how do we get practices that we know are really beneficial and how do we get them where they are needed most? You know, one really simple example is that of like hand washing, right? Like how many times have we know, have we been told if you wash your hands, infection rates go down? Well, I'm sure everybody on this call or listening to the pod has had a situation where their provider has walked on in and not washed their hands, right? So it's like, think like we know what we're supposed to be doing, but behavior change is really complex and we don't always do it. So that's kind of one piece of it. And, and there's so many factors to that. And I think that originally the onus was wrongly, in my opinion, on clinicians, well, you just have to do it. You just have Mm -hmm. to find what the evidence is and put it into your practice. And while I think most clinicians everyone that I have met, they want to do the right thing. They want to implement evidence-based practice, but there's so many other factors that aren't considered when the research is being created to begin with. And so these are other pieces of implementation science that might be able to help us. So things like co-production, where it's not just the researcher's idea who's been out of clinical practice for a really long time or perhaps never at all has been in right, practice, right? Yeah. Um, but it's co-produced with the clinician to try to get that closer together. But you know, when we talk about the research to practice gap, you know, you could really think of it as simple as like, here's this ideal practice that's in this journal article, but then here's what happens when I go to work, right? And these two things do not compute in a lot of cases. Like, <laughs> They're not the same. Yeah. And I think the hand washing one is a great example. But then also um, one of the things I think a lot of people really complain about or or have um, beef with, if you want to call it that, is lack of access to journal articles that are maybe not in um, a communication journal like the AJSLP or something along those lines that maybe they can't access the Journal of Neurology or um, the geriatric, there's quite a few aging journals. And so sometimes you, if you, you know, being at the university, we have more access because we can go through the university library and request it. But then also most health systems, and I don't, I've told a couple people at work this and they had no idea that we have a a person that that's what they do. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the health systems have access to these journals that maybe have a $55, $60, $100 article that we don't have because it's not PubMed or um, free sourced. You can get those articles a lot of the time that way. Um, So I think that's another thing that 
um, is a gap. It's not necessarily a, a gap in terms of how the research is being done and, and the relevance of it to clinical practice, but it's a, it's a gap nonetheless. Totally. And so, yeah, I think that's a huge one because um, we hear that. I hear that a lot. It's a huge, huge issue. You know, if you're a member of ASHA, then included in the ASHA membership is for journals. So it's like mm-hmm. Journal of Audiology, American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology, Journal of Speech-Language Hearing Research, and then Language, Speech, and Hearing Services in the school. So you get four. But there's so many places where articles related to our discipline are published. I mean, honestly, that would be a full-time job in and of itself to keep track of all of that, let alone the time and financial barriers to read everything that's coming up, decide if it's relevant to your population or not. It's really tough. Yeah. A lot going on there for sure. Yeah. And so what kind of suggestions do you have for keeping up with the research in the field? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different things. I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that in most clinical jobs, people are not given time or hours in their week to do this. So I think that's kind of one of the many elephants in this room that really need to be brought to the table. And we need to encourage our, um, the people that we work for to allow us to have some of this time to consume and evaluate some of this relevant literature. So I think off the top, we got to recognize that for most clinicians, they need to be close to 100% productive, whatever that looks like to your setting. And that doesn't mean that you can just sit around and read journal articles all day because it's just completely, it's cost prohibitive. You would be fired, right? It's just not something that you can do. Um, I mean, I remember as a clinician, just like worried about if I had time to go to the bathroom, let alone to sit down and like read a 20 page article. It's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, exactly. Um, But as we mentioned at the top in my disclosure, so one of the things that I do is I work, um, I have a part time employment with the informed SLP. And so the informed SLP is a business. So it is a subscription business. service, to be honest with you. I don't even know how much it is. It's low cost. It's between like 10 and $12 a month, but what they, they actually have a staff of 60 people. And what they do is they comb through all of the research that comes out every month. It kind of comes out like, um, a magazine where, um, there's a whole process where there's research scouts that scout the literature and say, this may be relevant to speech language pathology. And then after it goes through the research scout, it gets through the editors and then the editors assign those um, like a stack of articles to practicing clinicians. Mm -hmm. And those clinicians kind of write up a little review that includes like the take home points of the research Um, So it's written in a way that hopefully it's somewhat entertaining to read. That's the goal. We use um, cartoons and kind of other visuals to try to um, make the message like a little bit more palpable. And the idea is that they can be read or listened to um, in a quick like period of time. Um, You can also kind of go back and search things and use it as a database. Um, there's different sections, like I'm in the adult section, they have early intervention, pediatrics, etc. So that's kind of one way to do that. Um, another way to do that would be there's um, something known as Speech Bite, and this is like free um, 
you can sign up. This is out of Australia. And right. it, yeah, it's free to sign up for the emails. And a lot of times the emails that they send are open access. So SpeechBite is a little bit different where they're not going to be taking out like what the key um, clinical messages are. They're just going to kind of point you to the full article, but they only um, look at rigorous treatment research. So if you sign up for the speech bite emails, there'll be like dysphagia and any like controlled trial or really rigorous study will be listed like under dysphagia and then motor speech, et cetera. So speech bite is another really good one. Um, the ASHA practice portal. I don't know how much people are um, connected to that. If you type in um, like dementia ASHA practice portal, some items will come up in terms of research articles. Um, so that's kind of one piece. Um, the other piece I would consider is thinking about how you can get involved in different professional associations. So thinking about at the state level, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, I think we're, we're both kind of in that geriatric space. And so there's mm -hmm. like the gerontological society of America, the American geriatric society, um, places to kind of go and network in a little bit more of an interdisciplinary way. So I think about the American Congress on rehabilitation medicine. They're really yes. Yeah, closing that research to practice gap. Um, so thinking about, but again, I just I never I never want to say these things without acknowledging the reality that these every time you join one of these things, it's a couple hundred bucks, right? And I know that everybody is like operating on a limited budget, kind of like now more than ever. And then if you want to go to the conference, you know, that's like another set of money that may or may not be accessible, but sometimes through these organizations, they'll have like free virtual things or other items that you can, you know, take advantage of. I think that thinking about um, potentially the special interest groups through ASHA, mm -hmm. like, um, gerontology, and then the neurogenics one is a way to kind of keep up with what's going on. Um, in the research, you can kind of set up little like Google alerts for certain topics that you're interested in. So if there's a topic, you know, let's say you're treating, you know, life, you want more every time there's an article about life participation in aphasia, mm -hmm. right? Set up a Google Scholar alert for you to get an email that it um, gives you a little alert when it comes out. Um, yes, I will repeat the geriatrics. I will put it in the chat. So these, this is the Gerontological Society of America is one. And so the, the Gerontological Society of America, they're gerontologists. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like a mix of like physicians, some speech, audiology, PT, OT, rehab, nursing, and then the American Geriatric Society. So, and they um, have a lot of physicians, the American Geriatric Society, but they really like it when related health professionals join. Mm -hmm. um, so those are kind of spaces to maybe get um, a little bit more involved in those um, like outside of ASHA type things that can keep you on top of the evidence. Um, 
And the other thing that I would recommend if you have the space and capacity is if you ever like read an article that really jives and you're like, oh my gosh, like this research is like, yes, like this is like, I can adapt this to my patients. I can really use this would be to reach out to that first author and send them an email. I can tell you like over the course of however many um, years I've had that happen maybe three times and I'm always so excited and people are like, oh my God, should I email the author? Yes. Like that's totally what it's for. And who knows, like that's a way that maybe you could get involved in research as a clinician and have your voice more heard, you know? So I think, yes, journals is definitely part of it. But I think the other piece is really connecting with colleagues and networking and talking about um, what's up and coming. I think what we're doing right now, right, is a way to keep up with the literature, like listening to podcasts, you know, being intentional about what CEUs you take, um, you know, being a smart consumer, all of these things kind of play a role, acknowledging that it's tough. It's tough. I mean, you know, thinking to the informed SLP, again, this is like a business with a staff of 60 and it takes everybody to do it. Right. I mean, not 60 people full time, but it's, it's a whole operation to try to keep on in our field. So. Well, and I think one of the interesting things too, and I learned this as a graduate student, just because I, um, I had the good fortune of having Dr. Stacy Raymer as my mentor oh, and thesis yeah. supervisor. Yes. So, um, the Cochrane database is, you know, a great way to have that research sort of already vetted because they're doing the meta-analysis and the um, systematic reviews. And a lot of those systematic reviews are in the practice portal on ASHA based on the topic that you select as well. And I'm always surprised when people don't know that, but you know, if no one tells you and you had, again, you're talking about time constraints. If you're not looking at all of those pieces of what you have access to, because you just aren't aware. um, I think it's a great way to learn and know that there's more to um, what's out there that is accessible because it's not readily known. And I think speech, I'm with you, speech bite is another one that I really like. Um, And they've been, they had a different name before. I can't yeah, remember they, what it was, but they um, they had a different name before. But there's a lot of great research coming out of that Australia, New Zealand area. Right. It has been for many, many years now on communication and um, life participation with aphasia. And, and so that's just um, two really great, easily accessible resources, too. So kind of like moving on and switching gears just a little bit. What is the no-do gap? Yeah, so this is something that I think I experienced um, as a clinician where, you know, I think sometimes we have a knowledge gap, right? Like sometimes we truly don't know about what is this treatment? I've never heard of it before. Or what is this assessment approach? I've never heard of it, right? And so it's truly a matter of, I don't have this knowledge, right? And then there's another piece of like the do where it's like, no, I I've heard of this before, but I can't do it because I can't see my people five times a week for 45 minutes. I only get to see them for two times a week for 45 minutes or their insurance will only pay for six sessions when this treatment protocol says I have to have 18 sessions, right? So it's this idea that Sometimes it's a knowledge gap, 
right? It's a true knowledge gap. Like, oh, this is a new thing. I've never heard of it. I didn't hear about it in grad school, whatever. Um, But then I think sometimes what can be even more frustrating is to know like, yeah, I get that you want me to do this. I get that you want me to see them five times a week for six weeks, but I can't, or I can't see people in a group or I can only see people are in a group or, you know, I can only see this person for 30 minutes and I can, I have to do my eval and treatment in one session and I only have 45 minutes, right? All of these different constraints that we have that have nothing to do with with our knowledge base, right? But are more about the factors kind of outside of our control, if that makes sense. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the certificate tracker? The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. Yeah, so I have someone um, right now who had a fall back in July, and um, so technically it was a TBI, and she was in the hospital for quite a a bit of time, and um, she was in the waiting room today, and I said, hey, you're not on my schedule this week. What's going on? Are you okay? Because she had been in the hospital um, for a DKA, so because she's diabetic, and her husband goes, yeah, we had to make a choice between PTOT and speech, we could only pick two and we we figured we need to get her physically going because she falls under this new thing that we're dealing with called AIM, where there's a insurance company consultant who goes through and scours the records and looks for keywords and decides whether or not, and they're not clinical, decides whether or not we get more visits after the fifth visit. And this, no is someone, this is someone who needs to go back to work. So instead of doing a progress note and outpatient on the visit number 10, like we normally want, we or normally would, we do it on five and pray they'll give us more. And then you do another one on 10 and pray that they'll give you more. Oh and so they, um, they made her self pay and she can't afford to pay for all of it. Um, they denied, oh. I think her OT and she had been for, five or six visits. And so she's, um, in the, uh, in the tune of dollars right now for her self-pay. So that's mm-hmm. another new big thing because I'm like you, you know, if I'm following a protocol, um, with a patient, say I have a patient with Parkinson's and I know what the protocol says, but my patient has transport issues yeah. and they can only come twice a week. Or they're a multidisciplinary stroke patient who can only come twice a week because of the nature of scheduling and transport, and they don't feel well because they just had a stroke. Um, So yeah, there's all of these factors that play in. And so when it comes to the research protocols being developed, yeah, I would love to see these folks five days a week. Three days a week would be great too, but most of my people can come one, two if I'm lucky. Very rarely can I get someone to come three. And so that is a really huge issue for those of us that are working in outpatient and then, you know, in acute care, Ugh. Oh, <laughs> as much as I love the acute care, um, just the complexities and the, 
I won't say the fast pace because I'm I'm maturing, as my doctor says. <laughs> um, I loved a fast pace at one point when I was in it, but those are things too that make it very challenging and very difficult to implement any sort of protocol-based practice. Plus, in acute care, you go to the patient's room and the best laid plans, and oh well, they're going for their CT, or oh, PT got there first, or whoop, the neurologist is on telehealth today and they're in there for an hour. So yeah, it's, it's important, like you said, to bridge that from the clinicians uh, always say in the streets, because (laughs) I had a patient who used to joke about the streets of the hospital where I worked. (laughs) So when you're in the streets down here in the streets doing the stuff, it is really challenging to figure out how to make everything work and get that time frame in there. So thank you for acknowledging that. Oh, of course. I mean, there's so many, that's, that's all context. Right. And, and it's, that's one of the, one of the things that I think is going to be really promising that I hope we can get to this place in our field with implementation science is asking those questions from a like research perspective, right? Like thinking about the Parkinson's protocol, like let's say it's five times a week. So a researcher might ask, and I think they have this for certain protocols, but definitely not all, but like, okay, how much can I deviate from this protocol and it mm-hmm. still be the treatment, right? And so in implementation science, they call this a couple of different things, but one is like form and function, right? So it's like the function has to stay or the form might be able to take different shapes and it still be effective, right? Another way that they talk about it in implementation science is like the core components Mm -hmm. versus like the adaptable periphery, right? Like what is it that we have to do or the intervention is not the intervention anymore versus what can we play around with? Is it like dosing or um, intensity in some way? So I think, you know, clinicians are really rightly like begging for those types of studies, right? Like how much can I move this around and it still have like some type of impact, but um, within these constraints. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking is the dosage, because we know for most things when it comes to what we do in treatment, dosage is important and it is typically better to have a higher dosage and higher exposure to the treatment protocol But I think, too, a lot of the things that are protocol-based now have done a really nice job of building in a home exercise program that you can easily give to your patient or your client for that carryover where you're not trying to come up and scramble with some, you know, some random worksheets because someone wants a random worksheet to take home. But it's something that's actually going to be beneficial in carrying over the technique and maybe even the compensatory strategies and then having them be able to teach it back to you after a couple of times of practicing at home. Yes. Um, so I think that's really a really valid point as well. And so, you know, what kind of steps then can we take to start implementing those research findings in clinical settings um, beyond those protocols that are, you know, dosage based and, and time based and things like that? Yeah, you know, and I've been working with a couple of clinicians on a couple of different projects. And one thing, you know, that we have really talked about is, you know, it can be so overwhelming to like think about your caseload, your context, your environment, 
you know, and one of the things that we talk about is thinking about, is there a quick or quicker win somewhere, right? Where you think you can make an impact in your system. So um, one of the clinicians that I work with on some projects, her name is Sarah Penrod. And one of the things she's at the university or not a university, it's Maine Medical Center, I think. And one of the things that she helped to do is like an aphasia education program for everybody in her hospital. So this was something that they ended up like moving from taking in and they moved it into like a quality improvement initiative. So she was able to do some aphasia education, but there was some accountability involved because like people had to attend because they had to show like measurable progress toward this specific goal of aphasia education. So I think thinking about, especially if you're in a health system, is there something that could be a priority for your health system that's in line with the mission and vision and values of your organization that you can say, hey, speech can do this, right? This is where speech can shine. So in this particular case, it was um, aphasia education. But this whole kind of idea of quality improvement, so if wherever you're working, if there is, um, so for example, in, in nursing homes, inpatient rehabs, hospitals, there's usually some type of QI, they call it QIPA, quality improvement performance assessment, which is really, these are mini research projects, right? And for some reason, at least in my anecdotal experience, Speech is never like consulted to be like a part of these initiatives unless they like go and insert themselves like into the mix. But um, I think there's lots of different ways. Basically, a QI or a quality improvement project is a mini research project within your hospital or within your nursing home. And it doesn't have to you don't have to really get IRB. You still have to get consent of the patients and whatnot. You would have to like think about where you want to publish it. But the idea is we have an area of need. We want to try something. We want to study it, see if it works. And then we want to try it again. So one of the main models in quality improvement, it's like plan, do, study, act. Plan, do, study, act. So you pick one thing. And I think you can do this at the organizational level, if you have that opportunity, but you can also do that in at the individual level with your clients. So you can really think about being that clinician scientist and saying, what is it that I want to change? Which behavior, either individually or organizationally, you try something. So you try some type of assessment, approach, intervention, education module, et cetera. You study it. So you think about an outcome measure that would be of value to the person and their family. And if you want to get to that organizational level, right, you think about something like we've been talking a little bit about falls tonight, Mm -hmm. like hospitals care about falls, right? (laughs) Like they don't want their people falling. And so if you can think of something, right, that you can contribute that you're like, this might have an impact. If we address people's cognitive status right? If we make fall precautions universally accessible, this might decrease your fall risk. That might get somebody's attention, right? So it's like you pick an area that's small and measurable. You intervene 
you look at your data and you adjust, right? And if you think about it, you're like, yeah, I've been doing that as a clinician the whole time. That's what we've been doing. But these are the things that that can really move the needle. So I think maybe thinking about as a clinician, especially if you're like in management or if you have the administrator's ear, like what can you do to, um, yes, contribute and kind of take that data on an individual level? And then the next piece would be um, what can be done maybe at an organizational level through quality improvement or I don't know if you have any, Renee, experience with QI or what your thoughts are on that or... I, I had a little bit more when I was in IPR many years ago because yeah. that seemed, in IPR it was more, the focus was more on a, more of a holistic approach in things like stroke education classes for both the patients and the caregivers. And so okay. we would, we would do that and we did it in conjunction with the nurse educator. So it was one of her initiatives. We had the neuropsychologist there. And as long as there was one therapist from one of the disciplines, we could count it towards their one hour, the patient's one hour of therapy that we were um, required for part of their three hours a day. And so um, a lot of people were not comfortable with teaching stroke education. And, but I was, so I was, I did work on that. Um, But one of the things that has always been sort of a dream um, for me would be to do an aphasia community group or like an aphasia support group. And every time I've taken it, um, it's always, we can't bill for that. Um, we don't want to donate the space because, you know, if we do that, then we're going to do it after hours and you have to do it in volunteer capacity and it's always red tape and, and things. And, and so I think that's a great approach and how that, if you can partner with someone who already has an in, I know yeah. that, one of the neurologists at one of at our big big our big flagship hospital is doing some supported funded research for long covid but mm. they've only had exposure to a couple of clinicians of all of us in outpatient and I'm not one of them because I came in after they had started so I just oh, made this yeah. I've only been there a year now in outpatient so that was already in the works when I came in but I'm not opposed to sending an email because I presented on that a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and again, I think for me, this is kind of in line, not necessarily with a QI project, but it does speak to something I've heard a couple of people say recently that when you present at a state conference or you present at ASHA that you're not vetted. And I don't think people understand the process that speakers are required to go through and the requirements that you're have to meet, particularly with, with ASHA, you're reviewed by a committee and usually highly qualified people are on this committee. Um, from my experience, because I've been submitting to ASHA, this was I'm not even really remembering how, how many times it's not been a lot, but enough that, um, I did it this year thinking, <laughs> good luck. And I got it finally. Yay! It's a lot, it's taken a lot of work and a lot of refining, um, how I write the proposal, making sure that everything is very clear and that the research is not only there, but it's current. And, and that's something too, I think that mm-hmm. is important because when you're going through research, there's nothing that there's nothing that says you can't use a study from say 2006 if it's relevant to the topic as far as maybe the pioneer study that pushed this research over the edge. But if everything you have is 
15 to 20 years old, I'm probably not going to pay attention that much or maybe even attend because your research has to be up to date. Um, you know, you've got to be pulling, like you, you said, all these resources that we have to get the um, access to the research and the meta-analysis and the systematic reviews. Those are very important because that is the vetted part of the research where it's compared and it's um, really just reviewed by multiple people. And again, I think a lot of people don't realize the process that you have to go through in order to not only be published, but to be included in something like a systematic review or a meta-analysis that is validated. Um, just because you did research doesn't mean your research is validated. Right. That's right. That's right. And that, I think, contributes to the research to practice gap because right. we have so many clinicians that have these probably massive treasure troves of fabulous data that we can't learn from because where are they supposed to put their data, right? Again, if they don't even have time to read a journal, why are they going to have time to write a journal and go through the process of publishing and learn how to navigate all of that? Um, one of the clinicians that I work with, she jokes, she's like, I'm the doctoral student that you never wanted because she's like, wait a minute, how do you do this? Wait, how do I write this? How do I do this? I don't have Microsoft Word. I only have Google Docs. And what's the process? And um, you know, clinicians can submit to journals. It's almost like there's just this un, this like kind of like secret code or this like hidden curriculum that, you know, unless you're really collaborating with the researcher, um, it's really hard to get in those spaces and to enter those spaces. And, you know, I think there's um, a group of researchers that are really committed to um working on these issues and really elevating the work of clinicians. So again, I really encourage you to reach out to authors where you feel like you're connecting with their work, because who knows, you could collaborate, you could um, serve as a site, you could serve as a consultant. I mean, um, oh, there's a great story in the chat. Yeah, so true. To reach out to researchers and authors, I volunteered to help with normative data for a narrative language test with my students. And UT Austin offered to pay me summers and Saturdays over a two and a half period to help with another research study comparing three language therapy methods. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. Because I think, again, there's this misnomer that um, practicing clinicians that don't have a terminal degree maybe aren't qualified. And that's not always the case, particularly if you've got the CEUs to back it up. You've got the the research and the data that you're doing um, in your practice. You know, a lot of people are really still talking about PROMs, those patient yeah. um, measures. And um a lot of the times the insurance doesn't care. They don't want to see that, but that it's important for, I think, a clinician to at least have that data. Um, and some of the things that we don't even think about as being that are things like the EAT-10, um, yeah. the, the voice handicap index. Those are both rated by the patient and, and numerically, you know, one to five um, this is difficult, maybe not so much. And, and this is always a problem. So. Um, those are really great ways to keep track of your um, your patient reported outcome measures yeah. as well. Um, and I think, again, those are some of those things that people aren't really mindful of how important they are. And then there's some people that are, but a lot of, you know, we get that clinicians have that imposter syndrome. A, a yeah. lot of people 
the board. And so they just assume, well, maybe I'm not as good at this as I thought I was, or maybe there's always going to be someone else that's better or whatever the barrier is. But if you're, like you mentioned, working with these other projects, even if it's something like um, safety coaching, yeah. we all system, we all have a safety coach. They're required to report on things, not only to the committee, but then bring those things discussed at the committee back to their team. And that's, um, you know, that's something that you can be a part of pretty easily and get your foot in the door as an SLP, too, because then people start hearing you communicate and and seeing you bring these items to the table. Um, We had an ICU team that was doing research about um, accessibility to therapy earlier on in their ICU stay. And speech was completely excluded from that because they wanted us to be more product, more productive. And there was typically only one of us at the hospital where they had four to five, maybe six PT. So they could afford to have someone go to the research um, meetings and go to the, uh, the QI meetings and things like that, where, um, or the QA meetings. And for us, um, they were like, Oh no, you're just, you're just speech. I had a nickel for every time I heard you're just speech. Oh, it is infuriating. So thinking about all of that, <laughs> that was a lot. I know, right? What are some of the innovative ways that are coming up that are on the horizon that can help close that? Because I was looking at your um, study along with your colleagues about the power differential too between clinicians and researchers. And so that's sort of a twofold, two top, two different topic kind of question. Um so let's do the innovative ways on the horizon first. And then if we have time, maybe looking back at that power differential, because yeah. it's sort of where I was headed with that. People who don't have a terminal degree assume that they don't have value when it comes to contributing to research. Yes. Yes. So in terms of innovative things that I see on the horizon, one, I think, is learning health systems. Right. So these are health systems that are committed to being a learning health system. And if you Google learning health system, you will come up with these um, like several characteristics of a learning health system, which, but essentially it comes down to they, it's a cycle of continuous improvement, right? So they have people who are committed to looking at the literature. They're committed to using their data, not just to publish it, but to inform patient care and to make these adjustments now, right? Because that's the other thing we know about research is it takes too long, right? It just takes way too long. Um, But learning health systems really, I think, is something that is happening to where there's increased speed, increased relevance in the infrastructure to do it, right? Like we were talking, the things that we were talking about in terms of where do I put the data? How do I make these decisions? This is where I think, you know, many learning health systems have like a really tight IT department where they're able to pull data from the medical record that's already electronic and say, okay, if I'm implementing this intervention, does this measure move, right? Because I already am taking the data because we all have to take this data for the EHR, right? So it's like leveraging 
the electronic medical record and those measures that we have to do anyway, right? How do I'm thinking about, you know, like the MDS in nursing homes or the earth pie in inpatient rehabs, right? We Mm -hmm. already have to do these measures. So what can we learn from them, right? So if you have the infrastructure within your learning health system, you might be able to leverage some really cool opportunities because I think we're just like sitting on all this data, but we don't know what to do with it, right? Because it's not necessarily accessible. It's not publishable. If it is published, it's hard to access it, you know? So I think learning health systems is one um, thing that's on the horizon. I think the continued advancement of implementation science in our field is another one. Um, There are people that are so committed to merging this research to practice gap. Actually, tomorrow and Wednesday, um, the NIDCD or the National Institute on Deafness and Communication Disorders at the National Institutes of Health are actually having a two-day virtual workshop on implementation science. And so if our main funding agency, which is the NIH, if they are going to fund studies about implementation, that is so exciting because that's when we can finally start to see some of these changes. Um, and that is open and free to anybody. And I'm happy to put the link in the chat. Yeah, that would be, that would be great. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. So it's tomorrow and um, tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday. And it's also, if you can't make it because it's like right in the middle of the day, it's also going to be recorded as well. The other thing that kind of goes along with that is um, Tiffany Hogan. She's in pediatric language. She's at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. And for two years in a row, she has hosted um, a virtual implementation science conference that is designed to almost kind of do a little bit of like matchmaking, if you will, between clinicians and researchers. And so the whole theme of this year, of last year's conference in April was clinician and researcher partnerships. So she would um, kind of go through and ensure that um, one, she ensured that clinicians had equal representation, like when it came to speakers, and that you didn't have to have that terminal degree, um, but you had like the lived experience of what it means to be a clinician. Um, And then there were like breakout rooms where clinicians and researchers could kind of like mix it up, kind of like a speed dating type thing. And then it's just like another way to, um, to network. So I think I can put that in the chat as well, but I think these between learning health systems and implementation science, I put in the chat, um, the information about, um, the NIDCD workshop and then, this other implementation conference, um, it's usually in April and it's virtual, but it's so funny because I actually um, presented at that with one of my clinician colleagues who is a, um, she's a school-based clinician. She's like, what are you talking about? I can't take two days off for this virtual conference. So she literally <laughs> um, like came for like the hour of the talk. And then like watch the rest on recording or something like it's just but like it's like she has the passion to do it. But it's like we have got to like deal with this infrastructure issue. Right. Like, yes, like clinicians can't get time. They're supposed to be doing these things all. You mentioned volunteering earlier. Like you're just supposed to volunteer to do this. Well, 
researchers don't volunteer to see clinic people. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't go the other way around. Um, it just doesn't even make sense. I'm trying to find. No, that. it doesn't. And the other part of that that doesn't make sense is the fact that we're you know we're required CEUs for both state licensed here and um, you know our ASHA CEUs. And then for, you know, those of us who have other things, like I have a certified brain injury specialty, I have to have CEUs for that. My employer doesn't pay for any of that. um, That's all me. That's all me. And um, it's interesting because a person that I work, that I actually went to grad school with, and now she is a um, team coordinator in our health system for one Mm -hmm. of the pediatric clinics. Her clinicians, if they're speaking, they use that time um, as non-productive time and they get paid to go to the conference and present because they're representing the company. But my team person will not, not even entertain that. So if I'm going to speak, like when I went to speak in Mississippi, I said, well, you know what, if you're not going to help assist financially, then I'm not putting your name on my badge. Ooh, I like that. And they, you know, um, maybe they got mad. Maybe they didn't. I, at this point, I'm, now that I'm older, I don't really care. I know. I absolutely love that. I absolutely, I think that's amazing, Renee. Like it's, it's yeah. infuriating because it's, it it's, is, you got to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, that hierarchy of I'm the boss and you're going to do what I say, but we're again being devalued. You're going to do what I say, but we're being devalued. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think what I'm, what I just put into the, oops, wrong thing. Um, I put in the NIH thing, the MGH Institute of Health Professions twice. (laughs) And, but what I wanted to do, this is that publication and this is open access. So even if you're not an ASHA member, this is, anybody can have access to this article. If you click the link for those of you that are live for those of you listening. It's a, how a power differential between clinicians and researchers contributes to the research to practice gap. Um, so this was really a result of me honestly having a little bit of a hissy fit one day because I'm just so over the journal articles that say it's up to the clinic. It's solely the clinician's issue to implement evidence-based practice. So it's like, here's the research, you have to put it into your practice, but we need to be seeing clinicians as equal contributors to the process. And it's equally valued, but just different jobs. So um, in this paper that we wrote with some clinicians, we kind of talked about how historically researchers were the only like creators of knowledge and clinicians were, were just supposed to consume it. Right. And and that's just it. That is not a very helpful view with behavioral treatments such as ours that are so heavily context dependent. I mean, maybe if you solely worked in private practice and had like this perfect environment, but like we are part of broken systems, (laughs) schools, hospitals, healthcare. everybody's short staffed. Everybody is hurting. we need to take kind of a wider lens. So um, we kind of talk about, you know, these different influences of power and we give some examples of um, early intervention um, and aphasia study, and then like an assessment practice for people post-stroke. So maybe you'll get some ideas um, from that. It took a little while to get that through the peer review process. 
a good almost year. <laughs> but it's out oh, there. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I started um, reading that one today and um, all of my patients showed up. So I run this thing. <laughs> I run this exactly, gamut of like exactly. on a Thursday, I might have six people or seven people on my schedule because I'm part time and then four of them actually show up. And then on Monday, it's usually um, I'm completely full with eight and all eight show up. And then I don't have time to, like you mentioned, go to the bathroom, eat, whatever. And then um, last Monday, I think I had three. <laughs> so oh what's happening? Yeah. What is happening? All over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, this has been just, I, I feel like this has just been fantastic. And, you know, you and I have talked um, before. And so I'm really excited to see this, this last article that you published come out um, and be able to kind of go through it a couple of times and hopefully, yeah, get some ideas on how we can do things because there's a huge community based push right now for most health mm-hmm. systems to try to be a little bit more involved in the community from things like health fairs to some education, but those support groups are so incredibly important. Um, And we know that um, they have no problem with things like bereavement support groups or um, bereavement of a child and things like that. Again, super, super important, but for patients with aphasia or TBI, they need support too. They sure do for their chronic conditions. They they need support. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us tonight. Mm -hmm. We just really appreciate you coming on um, tonight as a guest and sharing so much of your knowledge and um, your resources as well um, with your research and your colleagues' research. So thank you for sharing all those links, too, because I didn't know about that, um, the implementation science thing. And I definitely want to watch that because I think it's just brilliant. so any last remarks or anything else that you'd like to share with us tonight? Yeah, no, I'm just very grateful for um, to be asked to come on. And I just hope as a clinician that you just feel um, so ready to contribute and know that your voice is valued and you're truly like you are the most valuable player on this team, you know, so to let your voice kind of be a contributor to the research process is just so very important. Um, and if, yeah, there's anything I can ever do or brainstorm with anybody or questions, I'm always happy to to chat. So feel free to shoot me an email and we'll go from there. Thanks everyone for being here. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. And thank you again, Natalie, for being here with us and sharing all your knowledge and have everyone has a wonderful night. Yes. Thanks everybody. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.